Good evening. Thank you very much for coming. It's wonderful to have you here. And welcome. Uh, my name is Milena Kalinowska, and I'm Director of Public Programs and Education here at the Hirschhorn Museum. Uh, tonight, we are delighted to have with us Los Angeles-based artist Kim Schonestach for a media artist presentation. Kim is currently participating in a Smithsonian Artist Research Fellowship Residency. The SARF program began in 2006 and brings together a variety of local, national, and international artists to explore cross-disciplinary connections between science, history, art, and culture. As part of the fellowship, Kim was given access to vast Smithsonian collections. I'd like to thank uh, Kerry Brower, our interim director of the Hirschhorn, for his continued support of the Hirschhorn public programs. Also, Caroline Elliott, manager of adult programs, for organizing tonight's program. I also would like to thank Ryan Hale, director of digital learning, and Drew Dossett, lead mentor of Outlab Plus. My sincere thanks also go to James Alephantis for his additional support of this evening. And now to Kim. Though born in Chicago, Kim has spent much of her life in Los Angeles. City life is reflected in her work, which primarily depicts complex urban landscape, charting the intersection between the actual bricks and mortar of city streets and the hypothetical elements of virtual reality. The real merging the unreal to create hyper-real. Kim's work embodies a fascinating intersection of architecture, sculpture, color, line, history, culture, and variety of concepts. Her mashup drawings allow her to defy the law of gravity with incorporating spaces, its architecture, into fantastic, like specific, site-specific installation that engage and delight audiences. Kim has had individual shows at the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art, Salt Lake, Los Angeles Contemporary Exhibitions, Wandsworth Antonio Museum of Art, Hartford, Connecticut, Santa Monica Museum of Santa Monica, Van Abe Museum Eindhoven, Netherlands, Alexander and Bonin in New York, among many other. She participated in numerous group exhibitions in the US and abroad. I should mention that street scenes, projects for DC, mobile billboard track wonderful exhibition took place in Washington DC in 2006. Her work is included in collections such as Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles, Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Creative Artists Agency Los Angeles, Van Abel Museum Eindhoven, Netherlands. I saw Kim's work for the first time in the Biennale in Prague at the National Gallery there in 2005 and since have been following and captivated by her constantly evolving work. Please help me to welcome Kim Schonestach. Thank you very much. It's really, I know it sounds totally corny, but it really is an honor to be here. I've admired the Hirschhorn for a long time, so forgive me, I'm a little nervous, so. 
I'm often asked about what kind of art I make, and to be honest, it's a little hard to describe. I make paintings that are not always on canvas. They often use very little color. Sometimes there isn't anything to see. Sometimes they aren't inside a nice white cube. And often chaos is inserted into the work by inviting others to tell me what to do. And now I've come off the wall into three dimensions. So, but let me back up a little bit and tell you about my obsession with architecture. It started in 2004 when I was selected by Lawrence Wiener for the Poland Biennale. I called him to ask for advice, and I'd never been in a Biennale, and I had definitely never been to Poland. And he said, well, uh, bring everything. Don't, they don't have money for shipping, they don't have money for materials, mumbled something about a lack of ladders. Nothing would get returned. It sounded very chaotic. So I decided clearly something directly on the wall was the best way to go. So then I had the problem of subject matter. I wrote to the organizers of the exhibition and I asked them just simply to send me pictures of things they found interesting. And what I got back was all architecture. It was sort of like a photo, like a photo diary, like somebody walked down the street and just took pictures of buildings they thought I might find interesting. And what I realized was that there was a conversation happening between the California modernist architecture and the Soviet brutalist architecture. And so I decided to make a combination of the two. But what happened next was surprising, and, and this is kind of what got me hooked. Um, the visitors who came to the Biennale, they spoke Polish. I, I, I had no reference to understand what they're saying. And, and one person kept pointing and saying, New York, New York, New York. And I kept saying, no, 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 it's Woods, it's Woods, it's right up the street. And a nice person came over and translated, and they said, yes, yes, we know that. We call that building New York. <laughs> And then a conversation started happening, and then they started saying, but why did you combine these two? And oh, and what's going on over here? And, and all of a sudden, I realized that these viewers who wouldn't necessarily have an in into the work had a relationship with part of the work. And that's how I got hooked on architecture. It was this sort of shared experience in learning the stories that really sort of got me, my brain, excited. So when I was invited to do exhibitions, I started researching locations and buildings and their histories. I also started really considering the space and creating a unique project for that particular location. The work here is from the Prague Biennale, where I met Milena, and was titled after the Frank Gehry's buildings in Prague, which are lovingly named Fred and Ginger. And I, I just want to take a moment to point out a couple of the buildings that I find I found really interesting. Um, let me see. This building up here um, with this platform, that was built by the Howard Hughes of Prague. And he built this house with this viewing platform, which actually had curtains which closed, so he could watch his airplanes take off. Um, and then the next thing you see here was something that everybody kept insisting was so Californian, but it was a Prague diving platform. 
And then this building here was a um, government building, but after the Pink Revolution, it became Radio Free Europe. In 2006, I was invited to San Francisco to participate in an exhibition residency called Squatting at New Langton. The gallery had done this before in the 60s, and um, you can imagine what a mess that was. This time they were trying to contain it a bit, and um, obviously I bucked the system. I wanted to use this point to explore color. Previously, I'd been very timid with color, and I didn't really know what to do with it. I, I do consider myself to be more of a drawer than a painter, and so this was a way that I could take the opportunity to learn how to paint, except I didn't know how to paint. So the closest thing to painting for me at the time was spray painting, because you're still just using line. You're still just, you're not having to deal with brushes, you're not having to deal with mixing. It's still just drawing, but with color. So I had this concept that I would just get other people to tell me what to do. And I used the same phrase, send me a word, a shape, or a mark, and tell me what to do. And it was a great way to get out of my own head. And what happened was I decided that I would make this drawing onto the canvas using a tape line, and then I would execute the instructions on top. And I when I removed the tape line, you would have the bare canvas exposed. One person pointed out to me and they said, you know, usually the architecture doesn't win when spray paint is involved. <laughs> and this is it cleaned up. I continued the exploration of painting, but this time I wanted to see what would happen when I burned the drawing into wood. So I used wood veneer. And I decided that I would just get my friends to start telling me what to do. And so I used the same technique of the masking and then applying the spray paint with the instructions. But with this series, I decided that I needed to manipulate the surface of the wood. In 2006, I was invited to participate in a mobile exhibition here in DC, curated by Nora Halpern and Wellman Lanstra, called Art Not Ads. This was my first use of photo background, which is a departure point for the postcard series that you'll see later on. I usually make the drawings from the photos of architecture, and in this work, I use the natural landscape void of architecture as the point for inserting the architecture. The title was taken from Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Waters House, and this is called Closer to Nature series Still Pond. And this one is Falling Water. And somebody had asked me if I had photoshopped the first photo, and I didn't, actually. Um, I had one friend stopping traffic in front of the Hirshhorn, and another friend stopping pedestrians, and actually laid down in the street to get these shots, some of these shots. 
Later that year, I was invited to do an exhibition at the University of California. The gallery had recently purchased a large-scale photo printer, and the curator invited me to play around. I had so much fun with the truck project that I wanted to continue, but I also liked the random effects from the spray-painted works. Here I used a, a tool in Photoshop called the Magic Wand tool, and basically what it does is that it selects like colors. So if you go in and you say, okay, choose all the reds, it will go in and it will find all the reds. And so I had decided to use these old photographs from my father-in-law from the 1970s. And I scanned them, and when I magnified them, I found that the scanner had picked up random colors inside the rocks. And it, they were probably artifacts because they were 70s prints printed on photo paper, and they were chemically done, and so they often had lots of weird colors in them. So for the one on the orange piece, there were all these um, purples in the rocks. And so I chose the purples and that made the pattern. And for the blue on the right, I uh, selected all the green in the rocks and that made the pattern. In 2007, I started a new series of wall drawings. There are now 10 in this series, and a mini retrospective was shown in Belgium a few years ago. They started by accident. I misloaded my fax machine. I recycle drawings, so I'll make a bunch of drawings and then make Xeroxes and play around with them and then recycle the paper. And so, always started show by asking the gallery or the institution to send me um, floor plans so I can study the space, I can really figure out what's going to look good, how it's going to, how big it should be, things like that. And so it just happened to be that I misloaded the fax machine and out came this floor plan right over the drawing. The, basically the only choice that I make, and you also see sometimes there are notes, and I like to include the notes, and what happened is as the series progressed, curators sort of caught on, right? They, they realized that their notes would be included, and so sometimes I had to call back and say, okay, you really just send me the floor plans. <laughs> like, you're, we really understand your dissertation, you know, like let's just scale it back a little bit. But really, I mean, the only thing that I do with these is, is manipulate the color. The rest of it is just there. And I always include, you're going to see along the top, um, I always include the traditional fax information, the date stamp, the fax number, um, unless for whatever reasons that needs to be omitted. Um, and of course, fax machines are totally outdated now. So we've moved on to email. Um, the email series, but um, the unfortunate thing is I still haven't figured out how to load the paper properly, so these things do keep happening, which is kind of nice. For each site-specific work, I do a large amount of research. This started in Prague, but for this project at the MCA Chicago in 2007, it got a lot more personal. For this work, it was easier. I grew up a few blocks away from where the MCA Chicago is. I had saved photos from a class project when I was a little kid. The project was to document your neighborhood. 
My neighborhood was changing, so my photos had descriptions like, this was where we used to get ice cream. It's now going to be the Magnificent Mile Shopping Center. This used to be a parking lot. Now it's going to be the water tower, etc., etc. I saved these for some reason. I'm not sure why I saved these, but I saved these. And when I was invited to do this project at the MCA, I pulled them out. And they were perfect source material for the drawing. I then researched the more contemporary pieces of architecture in the city and contrasted them through inversion. So the pieces right side up are the new, and the pieces upside down are the old. The green shape is the drawing inverted, so the older buildings are righted. The line pulling out of the mess is a walk that I used to do with my dog, that, that walk right here. Um, and the, the beautiful thing for me, conceptually, was that I actually would walk around many of these places. And the other thing I wanted to point out was that this building down here, that's the old armory um, in Chicago. And it was, it was kind of a weird moment for me to include it because um, I, wasn't, I wasn't trying to be political. It just was an older piece of architecture that I loved. But it also had gotten torn down in order for the very building that I was working in to be installed. In 2007, I was invited by the Van Abbey Museum in Eindhoven, Netherlands, to make a large-scale installation. The curator and I spoke about engaging the local community and having them be involved. So much like the New Langton work, I again invited people to send instructions. This time, we invited friends and supporters of the museum. My curator was from Belgium, and he had sent me a photo of the Atomium. Um, this is the Atomium from the Brussels 1958 World's Fair, and it was, it was awesome. I, I love this piece of architecture, and I love, I love how weird it is, and I love just the awkwardness and how sculptural it is. And I decided that I was going to use the basic cell structure from that as the basic structure for the installation. But then that was also the aha moment that got me hooked on World's Fair pavilions. This is a photo of some of the instructions. And so the way that the project worked was that we, we got just hundreds and hundreds of instructions, and mostly in Dutch. So you'll see there's some sort of scribblings on these. And that's sort of the curators translating so I could understand what people were telling me what to do. And we, um, we just hung them in the windows of the museum. And so that when people, people were allowed to come and volunteer to help spray paint all these instructions, and we got a great response. And so, you know, you'd go over and you'd read your instructions and then you'd go and you'd spray it and, and then you'd mark an X on it. And the funnier moment was, um, uh, I think it was close to the end of the, the installation and one of the girls started laughing hysterically and she said, the only one left is mine. <laughs> And this was definitely the largest installation that I had done, nearly over 30 feet tall and over 200 feet wide. This is a collaboration that I had done with Mara Lahner at the LAX airport in 2008. 
and it introduced me to a solution to my color line problem. It showed me that color could work as an independent personality and that it didn't have to be so chaotic. It could have a mind of its own. Oh, and this, this was something that kept happening a lot too, um, and we were totally okay with it, is that people didn't believe that it was directly on the wall. They, they, for some reason there was just this visual illusion effect that, that kind of got both of our minds thinking. But the, we did get a call from the curator saying, you know, we need to learn, we need to know how to clean it because people keep touching it and, and wanting to feel it and they're just walking along it. And that was pretty okay with us actually. We liked it. We wanted them to leave the, the, the prints of the hands on the art. I continued my collaboration spree, but this time with Rita McBride. These collaborations were important works for me and they were because they were another way for me to get out of my head. They were also the same year that my for, my daughter was born and it was a great way for me to continue to work. We based this show on the 1969 exhibition Art by Telephone which was at the MCA Chicago originally. The exhibition had a twist to the ex original exhibition, which was Rita and I exchanging instructions. The original exhibition was that the artist would call in the instructions to the museum and the museum would execute them. We also decided to riff on the original exhibition by recording the instructions and making a record. And here you see the record player playing our instructions over and over in the exhibition. The original Art by Telephone exhibition also had a catalog, which was a record, and we decided to do that as well. The original exhibition had the essay on the cover, and we decided to put the essay on the inner sleeve. We then had the contemporary problem of nobody having record players, and we took a cue from the butthole surfers and etched our instructions into the record. After the Santa Monica Museum project, I was invited by Carol Stekanis of the Los Angeles Contemporary Exhibitions, or LACE, to create a project that was very unique. She had a lot of parameters. She wanted a year-long project where the back gallery would have some of the walls active, but not all, and there would be programming in the space so nothing could be on the floor. I developed a project called Painted Over slash Under Parts 1 through 4. It was a year-long project based on the mismatched color patterning created by graffiti maintenance that painted out graffiti on freeway retaining walls or other open walls in the city. The premise was that I would have four parts. Parts one through three invited different curators who invited writers, artists, and architects to create drawings and shifts on the walls of the gallery. Each exhibition would be painted out haphazardly in the style of graffiti maintenance. Part four was the reveal, my drawing which had been placed over each part prior to being painted out. Here you see one applying part of the one, over 100 foot drawing which was output onto vinyl and vinyl is like a big sticker and it was cut into sections and so each section was placed over portions of each previous project, preserving each work in a way. This is a sample of the painted out project. The vinyl is underneath the sections which had already been painted out 
and the, um, the white shape that you see there is an artist's instructions for their piece that went over the top of the previous projects. And this is a sample of some of the architects. Part four was the big reveal, where the vinyl that had been placed under all the painted out areas throughout the year was removed. So what you see here is a sort of archeological excavation of the past projects. And you can see, so there's different colors in it. So this is one project that happened. This was another project. I think this was part of that trapezoid that you had seen. And um, somebody had pointed out to me that the work was, in essence, a giant palimpsest. In 2010, I made a major exhibition at the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art in Hartford, Connecticut. It was part of the Matrix series. And I decided that in this I was going to be um, ambitious. I decided I wanted to go on the floor, the ceiling, the walls. And for those of you who don't know about the Matrix project, it's actually an incredible project. It was started in 1974, and it was the first museum exhibition that was dedicated to giving younger artists their first museum shows. Their first artist was Ellsworth Kelly. Artist Matrix 83 was Barbara Kruger, who we all walked on when we came in, to the, uh, in this evening. And the other incredible thing that they started doing was they created, for each exhibition, they created these mini catalogs. And they archived all of them on their website. So I highly recommend going back because they're really incredible documents. So for this project, I decided to combine local architecture with fictional architecture. In my research, I saw a historic photo with a Tony Smith sculpture on the lawn of the museum. And I liked the shape so much that I used it as a constant element that wove in and out of the architectural mashups. It served as a, a sort of interruption. I liked that the sculpture had three-dimensional forms similar to architecture. They were both dealing with line, form, and mass. In this work, you can see, this is one of the three, the installation had three major pieces that were connected. And in this one, it's the fictional architecture. You can see the Jetson Skypad apartment, the house from North by Northwest, the, um, for those Jacques Tati fans, let's see if I can get this. There's the, um, the fish fountain from the Mon Unk movie. There's also the Legion of Doom and the Hall of Justice. This, this piece had only Hartford architecture, and Hartford architecture turned out to be rather fascinating. They have the world's only two-sided building, and at first I kind of nodded my head and said, uh-huh, 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 and then I thought, two sides? What? <laughs> but it's true. I mean, it's just like this. It's a, a very strange building, um, and yet it totally works in Hartford. Um, you also see this, this strange sort of onion dome thing over here, and that's the old Colt gun factory, which um, is now Artist Studios. 
The smoke shapes that you see coming off of the paintings, these are the drawings themselves, but twisted and reshaped and stretched to create a sort of memory that sort of like a memory of the works disintegrating. It's sort of a, I thought of it as this sort of smoke shape or these webs that connected all of the different elements in the exhibition. And it, it, they kind of did remind me of like when a building is torn down and you have that empty footprint, that void between the two other buildings and you can kind of imagine what used to be there. That was sort of what was going through my head. This is the central piece where I combined the two pieces of architecture. And I really, um, with this piece, I, you can see that I went off onto the floor and then I also went on, the drawing uh, flowed onto the ceiling and into the smoke shape. And I wanted it to sort of come together and fall apart. This was definitely the first moment when I had uh, the sculptural interruptions make their way into my work. The following year, I was awarded the Catherine Doctorow Prize for Contemporary Painting. And I really underestimated how cool it was to see a mini retrospective of my work. Uh, but I couldn't help myself. I, I, I decided to create two new participatory projects. One of them you see here, sort of. Um, unfortunately, their documentation is a little dark. But you can see there's a, there's a boom box here and two milk crates. And the concept was that people were, there's signage on the floor that you can't see, but the signage says that you're invited to make a soundtrack for the exhibition. And um, people did. And it was really great to hear, you could, you could shuffle through all of the CDs and you could put them in and play music in the gallery. And it was, it was really nice to hear musical interpretation of the work. And this, is the, this was the second project, and it's called Paint by Numbers and Shapes. And the concept here was that we started again with one of my drawings, and it, again it was output onto vinyl, and it was put onto a wall that was painted black. And we went into the back room of the museum and just grabbed old paint cans. I mean, every museum just has like this room of old paint and it's really phenomenal, all the different colors that they've painted the galleries. And so this is all old paint chips. Uh, we made chips into them and then we numbered them. And the concept was that viewers of the exhibition could come, there's a bucket of chalk and you could make a shape and then put your number into it. And um, once a week, volunteers came and they literally painted by numbers. So the shape with the smiley face that was number three got painted into white. And it's unfortunate I don't have good documentation of how it worked out, but it was, um, it was really amazing to see how... I mean, it sounds sort of like a duh moment, but it really did feel like Salt Lake City. Like, the painting that resulted was purely a product of the people who had made it. I mean, they weren't trying to be cool, they weren't trying to be different, they weren't, it really just felt like some of those cool people that I had met in Salt Lake City. In 2012, Jens Hoffman, then of the Wattis, curated an exhibition based on Harold Zeman's 1969 exhibition called Live in Your Head, When Attitudes Become Form. And it, it was 
for this project, it was, this was another sort of really juicy project because he basically said, this was a great exhibition, go study it and tell me what you think. And he came and he said, you know, I just really like, I really like these postcards that I'm getting for your exhibitions. I had started using, um, creating these little postcard drawings for announcements for the exhibitions. And they generally never actually got shown. Um, and Jens had gotten one and he said, okay, let's, let's work. Can you do something like that? And I thought, oh, that's really fun, sure. And so I started researching that exhibition and I started getting obsessed with um, these Richard Serra lead pieces, which then were titled differently a few years later called the Prop Series. And these are a couple of the postcards and announcements that you see that I had made previously. The piece you see here is from a show that I did in Cologne, and I decided that I had been working with architecture and the sculptural forms interrupting, and this time I, I really wanted a major interruption. I really wanted the sculpture to win. And um, I, I had seen this piece of um, sculpture, I had just read about it, and I, I, I really became fascinated with the concept was it wasn't done by an, uh, an artist, it was done by a designer who wanted to reflect all of the different views of the city. And so I decided that it was going to interrupt all of my drawings. And here you're also going to see the props literally propping up the mass, propping up the drawings. I wanted to insert this slide because I wanted to take a moment to share a little bit about my process. Um, for every one wall drawing, there's 10 to 20 preliminary sketches. And this is just an important way for me to work. It's an important way to, for me to have fun and to figure out what's going to work in the space. And I started off as a person making drawings and it's, it's still there. <laughs> I can't get away from it. And these are two of the wall pieces that came out of some of those sketches. Coming off the wall, I've been struggling with this for a while and I was invited by Otis um, Art Institute in LA to create a work. And I thought, well, this is the moment. This is a good moment to experiment. It's a school, and I can, I can just really take a risk. And that was a really fun thing to do. The other fun part was that the um, architect of the building, um, this is actually Otis right here. And um, it used to be an old IBM building, and it was created by IBM to look like a punch card. And not that any student in Otis has any clue what a punch card is, but um, when you say, oh, it looks like the building, they say, oh, yeah, sure, okay, great. But the thing about Elliot Noyes was, that was interesting to me is that he, not only was he an architect for IBM, and not only did he develop the Celeptrex typewriter, which was the first sort of automated typewriter, but he also sort of, this, these up here, these little, they look like umbrellas. 
They were the mobile gas station things. And I just looked at it and go, oh, he's the one who did that. And it just blew my mind that he was just this IBM architect who did those. But he had also given this really interesting lecture about counterlevering and the problems of counterlevering in architecture. Um, and so the shape that you see here is actually based off of his lecture on counterlevering. These, the sculptural shapes that you see weaving in and out of this piece are um, harken back to the Wadsworth Athenaeum show, which is also the home of Solowit, or was the home of Solowit. And it was the first place where Solowit had exhibited the uh, incomplete open cube series. And I, I quickly became obsessed with these things, and I couldn't figure out how to incorporate them into my work. And then this moment kind of arrived where I wanted to come off the wall, but I'm not a sculptor. And so the, I needed to stick with sort of ge strict ge geometric shapes. And this was a perfect way to insert that into the work. So you're going to see there are five points where they, we come off the wall. Down here, 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 and way up there. For the next piece, I got a little bit more adventurous. I decided to take the whole thing off the wall. And so this is actually an entire independent object. It's a shaped piece of um, wood that has these geometric shapes coming out of it. And this was um, done shortly after for a show at LA Louvre Gallery. And for that, I decided that I really wanted to look into this concept of um, unrealized architecture. I'd been living in LA for a long time, and I had, I had heard so many people talk about projects that they wanted to do, and they had plans drawn up, and then nothing ever happened. And I thought, oh man, how cool would LA be if Rem Koolhaas really did build that Venice Canal house? Or or if, you know, Fred Fisher actually did design the animal husbandry center at the LA Zoo. I mean, it would be a totally different situation. And this is the exterior work for that, for that exhibition as well. And with this one, I, it was a challenge of doing an exterior work, which is normally a challenge, but when you're two blocks from the ocean, it's a really big challenge. Um, not only do you have to deal with sort of the paint fading because of the sun, but there's also all this moisture and bubbling. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to extend all of the sight lines of the architecture. I use Photoshop a lot, and one of the things you can do in Photoshop is just extend all the vector lines. So I had done that in Photoshop and come up with this beautiful maquette with all of these sort of masses and tangles of lines that are just the extensions of all the architecture and it was great and I got this snap line that had ink and it was great and I got there and I tested it and it bled like crazy. So um, my husband works at the Getty and I said, honey, go figure it out. And he said, oh, I happen to have lunch with these people who are painting conservators. And they had this brilliant idea of using, switching out the ink in the ink line of this very traditional building tool just to, um, it's like a really watered down acrylic. 
it worked so perfectly because we got this nice thick line and yet it still read like an ink line and it didn't weep and it stayed up for the whole exhibition and what what resulted was basically all of these beautiful tangles of lines in in that work I also um, couldn't resist the opportunity of hearkening back to um, Ed Ruscha's spotlight paintings Okay, I've babbled on for a long time about my work, and I also wanted to take a moment about to talk about the Smithsonian Artist Research Fellowship, otherwise known as the SARF. Um, this was an incredible opportunity, and um, I worked with four different institutions, Air and Space, Archives of American Art, the Hirshhorn, and the American History Museum. Air and space, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just like the four-year-old in me, but I just wanted to go there. I didn't know what I was going to find. I just, I just knew I, there was something there. And I ended up working with the archivist, just sort of plowing through photo binders and archives. And then all of a sudden, I found these photos of parachutes. And they're the parachutes from the Apollo and Gemini missions. And I just, it just kind of hit me. Like, I just got obsessed with them because it's so hard to get somebody into space. It's really, really hard. But getting them home, we used a parachute. Like the dumbest, oldest thing. And drag. I mean, they're really high-tech parachutes, but they're still parachutes. And the thing that impressed me was that they were just shoved in boxes. And, and my favorite was this photo down here um, of these people who clearly just don't know what to do with this thing. <laughs> They're like, look, it's really big. Um, and I, I guess I just, I kind of liked the patheticness of them and how something so, so important is just sort of left there. From the Archives of American Art, I specific, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to go into Esther McCoy's paper. <laughs> Esther McCoy was in, uh, a writer in Los Angeles. She was the first female architectural writer, and she was very important to California architecture. Um, but I, I had no idea what was going to be in her archives. And she had some really cool stuff. I mean, stuff she never, ever wrote about, stuff that she just found randomly interesting. She had a tendency of photographing people's art collections. Um, it was, it's a really cool archive. Um, I also wanted to specifically look at this Dutch curator's archives. Um, not, I don't know why it didn't occur to me that even though he was a Dutch curator working at the MCA Chicago, he was the, he was the curator who did the Art by Telephone show. Um, I sort of thought that all of his archives would be written in English, and they weren't. <laughs> so that was kind of a dud. But, um, the Hirshhorn, obviously. The Hirshhorn, the Hirshhorn was just inspiration. It, it, I just, I had a chance to study how other people had dealt with the issue of three dimensions and how other people had taken that leap and struggled with that concept as well. The American History Museum was another place that I, I sort of went to just not really knowing what I was going to find. Um, but what I found 
was similar to my obsession with architecture of liking the stories. I found this amazing curator who just dug deep in the collection and shared stories. And now I'm going to tie it up and open it up to questions. Okay, so now we're going to ask, I have three questions. Okay. Can <laughs> I start? Uh, the first one is, uh, are you drawing from existing architects? I mean, do architects give you the perspective? I mean, obviously it's not just flawless. Or do you trace photographs? Or do you yeah, no, I don't trace. That's actually very important to me. Um, it's it's just a personal thing. I I usually start from photographs. So I'll, and the LA Louvre show actually was the very first time where I spoke with a real architect, because Fred Fisher was the architect for that space, and I got an introduction to him because I thought, well, if I'm going to go and violate this guy's walls, I better talk to him first. And he was super sweet about it, and that's how I. I found out about all of his unrealized projects. Um, most, most of the time it's asking the site to send me things they find interesting or asking curators or asking other people for guidance. This is what I don't understand. This, for instance, this, this perspective. Yeah. You look at the photograph and you draw and you enlarge it. Ah, okay. So, what you're seeing here is a combination of multiple different pieces of architecture. The process is I get a photograph of a piece of architecture. I make a hand drawing. I then either scan it into the computer or I make it into a transparency and I use an old-fashioned light table and I just pile them on top of each other until it starts to make sense. So basically, you are inspired by the I use a graffiti pen. It's like a giant poster marker. It's like a Sharpie, except um, it's better ink. Yeah, yeah, it works vertically, and it's it doesn't come off very well. So when you're doing something that you, it's the the interesting thing to me actually is I just did research as to the archivalness of some of these pens, and they're actually remarkably archival because they don't use these nasty chemicals like xylene, so they don't destruct. They're actually more pigment-based, pigment which is why uh, you have to paint over them a lot. Okay, now what about the vinyl? You were talking about the vinyl and tape and all this. What, the, what do you do on the vinyl? Ah, you can take a drawing like this, and you send the, fi the file digitally to a giant printer. Oh, and the printer prints it out, cuts it out, and it's like a, it makes a sticker for you. And then you draw over it if, I'm, if, if the vinyl is the first layer, and then, then we paint over it, and it acts like a mask. And the last thing, when you talk about instructions, let's say in Poland, they gave you instructions. Can you be specific? Like what they, they, they told you what they want to see in the exhibit? Is that what you yeah. mean by instructions? Yeah, like um, in one of them, uh, Lawrence Wiener sent me instructions. And he actually sent me a 
picture of a stencil. And he said, do that. And use red. And use Krylon. And you just take it and apply it? Or you... Just take it and apply it. Oh, you ask question why? No. I, I'm trying to learn CAD CAM, but it's a really hard program. I'm actually using Google SketchUp. Um, but I don't, I use the SketchUp for the three-dimensional objects in order to figure out where they're going to be and how they're going to be. But I don't use it to make the drawings. Because, for, I don't know, for me the drawings are still flat. I'm still drawing them only in one perspective. But that that's the sort of logical evolution of my work, is to create a 3D model of the sculpture, of the, sorry, of the architecture, and then start doing a three-dimensional actual physical mashup. why I make so many drawings because there's I, I mean I I don't necessarily think of it as done or more in terms of solutions so for every one wall drawing there's 20 or 30 different solutions of things that could work for that wall and then basically it's just me sort of using good old model like foam core and making little stupid maquettes and just saying oh that one looks good there or oh wow it really looks better if it's kind of a different shape but it's each drawing itself is a contained sort of moment and for me it's more about balance and mass and sort of open and closed spaces so much insight into your inspiration for the lines and the architecture and the structures. Could you speak a little bit about your color palette, which I have really enjoyed and found very striking? Um, I can probably give you less insight on that <laughs> other than, other, other than um, I, I like colors that argue and I like I like getting pissed off about it. Like, if, if, if the color, like, if there's some color argument in there and it's really upsetting me, then I'm good. Because it's sort of, I just, I don't want it, it, if it's too pretty, then it's kind of not interesting for me. I, I like that kind of argument within the color. And I really know that I've hit it when my husband is like, oh man, why that one? And then I'm like, okay, I nailed it. <laughs> Thank you. 
I'm not sure I can answer that, actually. Um, in terms of our history, I don't know. I don't. I'm. I'm. Um, I don't. I don't feel comfortable saying, "Oh, I fit into art history like this," because I don't know. I don't know that I fit into art history. I don't know that. I'm just doing my thing. And in terms of like, what would you tell um, high school students about? making art. Um, I, think, I think the most important thing for me was just to not, just to be open to it and just to like look around and take it in and not to assume that I understood anything. And I definitely had that moment when I went from Chicago, which had a very specific idea of art. It was very, it was a very kind of clear understanding of this is art and then this isn't art. And then I got to California, and um, I knew nothing. And that was probably the best moment for me, was realizing that all of these nice things that I had seen and that I had studied, it didn't matter, because you can do whatever you want. for me. It's just about finding the right context. And so you actually did see them come back um, right here. Um, except it was much more stayed, you know, like the constraints of this installation and the constraints of the budget and, and all of these things. Um, originally it was much more wild, like it was much more messy and it was much more disorganized. But I did want the sort of large gray shape that you see is this sort of memory of all of the different pieces of architecture going on in that piece. Um, but I, I feel like that kind of like the moving all the way around and the integration of enveloping the whole space, that worked very well for that spot because that room was so cavernous and the ceiling was really... I mean, in the, in the same way that like in the lobby upstairs for me, it's about the floor. Like Hartford, it was kind of about the ceiling and it was kind of about making that room feel sort of claustrophobic. You showed us the images of what you researched while you were here at the Smithsonian and in collections. And where do you think your research will take you? You showed us an interesting photograph, but what's next? I've actually started an entirely new series of drawings based on the parachutes. And it's a oddly traditional, large scale sort of 
paper and pencil drawings of them. And it's, it's exciting because, like I said, I mean, I love drawing. So it's fun to go back and to sort of take a zag and to do these kinds of um, super intensive, detailed pencil drawings of parachutes. The rest of it, I'm not sure. I mean, the Hirshhorn, the three-dimensional stuff obviously integrated in quite easily. Um, and then the rest of it, I'm still figuring out how to integrate it in. Okay, thank you. Thank you.